Hi, folks. This is Brad Watson, pastor at Nexus Church. We are glad you have found our sermon podcast and that you're interested in our teachings. If you've ever considered financially supporting our work at Nexus Church, you can do that at nexuschurch.ca slash give. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. Morning, everyone. We're continuing our series uh, on revisionist history. And uh, last week, made some rather bold, audacious claims about the Christian faith, the church's history. And um, reflecting on it after, I was talking to a few close friends, said, Brad, you seemed a little defensive last week, seemed a little maybe trying to prove too much. And uh, I thought that was fair. I, 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 I neglected to talk about why this is a bit personal for me last week. I edited that part out, but I'll, I'll talk just a little bit about it because in, in a community like this that I think churches hurt a lot of people, when, when you make some bold claims about what Christianity has done through the ages for us, it can be a bit of a tough pill to swallow. And I think a lot of times people will say to me, Brad, you're saying that only because you're a pastor. You have to say that. Which I like to say, well, maybe the only reason you're not saying it is because you're not a pastor. But um, it's important for me to know, for you all to know, that when it comes to seeing the worst of the church, I like to think I've seen it. The church has hurt me greatly over the years. I was sexually abused in a church growing up along with three other friends. I've watched as those three friends have, two of them wasted their life on alcohol, lost three marriages. I watched as the church I, I grew up in, the lead pastor having, well, he would have been, would have been different these days, but back then, five different affairs at the same time, a church that completely fell apart, families disowned, excommunicated from the church. Seeing the worst the church can do. And even today, I feel kind of alone in the church world. It's not like anyone's banging on Nexus Door saying, will you be part of our affiliation? It's just kind of just hanging out there, this lone wolf church. Too maybe conservative for liberals, maybe too liberal for conservative. Whatever it is, still feel a sense of isolation. And so I know the church can and often is horrible. But I remember a Rob Bell conference way back in the day. It was called Isn't She Beautiful? And I was just a young pastor at the time, and I went this, and the whole conference was him pitching how amazing the church is and how it's worth giving your life to. And I was like, yes, I'm in. And then he left his church, of course, and that was a little disillusioning. But um, my goal with this series is to really honestly wrestle with the church, its ugly side, the history of our faith. But I've become convinced the church, the history of Christianity, has so shaped our world, and it's good for us occasionally to step back and go, my goodness, the world, the church over 2,000 years has created is beautiful and we're at risk today of losing some of those important values. 
And so this morning, the title of my sermon is Life is Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. We'll get in. We talked a little bit about equality. We'll talk more about that this morning and the church's legacy there. But friends, I want to begin by reminding us of something that happened during COVID years. Um, And I'm convinced that at some point during COVID lockdown years, all of us were part of a certain hushed and whispered conversations that happened. The kind you don't say out loud in public. I think you know what I'm talking about. But in these whispered conversations, maybe it wasn't you that said the thing. Maybe you were just a friend that somebody else said the thing to, but you were part of a conversation during COVID lockdown where the thing was said. By the time we were all locked down for the third time or fourth, I can't even remember now, but I remember, remember it was Boxing Day 2021. We're like, oh no, not again. And it was, there was all this controversy because it's like, go ahead and be with your family on Christmas and everybody get COVID and then we'll lock down. You're like, oh, not again. We're gonna, this can be months of this again. And I'm convinced vaccines were around by that point. I'm convinced by this point, in early 2022, all of us had had this conversation or were privy to a conversation that went something like this. Psst. Hey, friend, I might be losing my mind here because it's been a long couple of years. So don't hold against me what I'm about to say. Just throwing things against the wall to see what sticks. But maybe if you're 92 years old and haven't had the vaccine yet, maybe you deserve to die. Okay, now all of you are like, Heck no, Brad. I never had that conversation. I'm not saying you said it. I'm saying you heard somebody say something like that at a little family gathering. Did you say it? Never. Of course not. I just pick up these things. And or, or let me try this one out. Maybe when we learned that some people were drinking bleach to get rid of COVID, all of us maybe had this thought, I think this is natural selection at work. (laughs) Maybe, you know you thought it, you've blocked it out, you've erased that trauma from your mind, but it may not have been you, but someone you know threw it past you. And here's the thing, none of us dreamed of saying that out loud in public. Never, we would never, just only hushed with close friends we could try that stuff on. But at one point, maybe we thought, just in our abominable abominable imagination, maybe not all people are equal. Maybe some lives are worth more or less than others. But of course, we would never say that out loud, but there's one person who did. Jonathan Somethian, he's also known in Britain as Lord Somethian. He's a difficult man to define. 
He's a revered historian. He's written an acclaimed five-volume series on the Hundred Year War. He's an esteemed lawyer. Uh, he's one of Britain's greatest public intellectuals. He served on their uh, Supreme Court of Justice. And despite a storied life and career, he came to great prominence during COVID because he was very against any of the lockdown measures. In fact, he created a firestorm of controversy, particularly in one very public debate where he uttered these words, I don't accept that all lives are of equal value. Hmm. The shock and outcry was immediate. And I want to give him some grace because in context, I think all of us might give him a pass. This is fully what he said. My children's and my grandchildren's lives are worth much more than mine because they've got a lot more of it ahead. I don't accept that all lives are of equal value. And we might go, that's actually kind of sweet, caring about his kids and grandkids. That makes a certain amount of sense, but it's what happened next that really got him in hot water. Because the producers, I don't know if they knew this was coming, but they played this quite well and created a firestorm controversy. Immediately after he said this, they introduced, and everybody was locked down, so it was on video, a woman named Deborah James. And Deborah James was a 39-year-old woman with stage four cancer. And they introduced her on the screen, and the first thing that she said was, I am the person, Lord Sumptian, who you say their life is not valuable. And as we older white men are sometimes prone to do, he interrupted her. And he said this, I didn't say your life was not valuable. I said it was less valuable. <laughs> Britain erupted for two full weeks. There was articles about this. Adam Wagner, a member of the British Equality and Human Rights Commission, called his words inhumane, almost grotesque. To the Western mind, this was heresy, and Sumtian was a heretic. And the response was harsh and swift. It was instantaneous revulsion at the thought that a man could say a woman, 39, stage four cancer, her life was less valuable than this man's kids or grandkids. It was abhorrent to the public. And what was interesting to me more than even what Lord Sumpian said was how Deborah James responded. How would she defend her value and the value of others like her? Notice the language she employs. She said this back to him, who are you to put a value on a life? In my view, and I think many others, life is sacred. And I don't think we should make those judgment calls. All life is worth saving regardless of what life it is people are living. Life is sacred. And it's interesting to me that on, on an occasion where many people would never use the word sacred, when it comes to the value of human life, we start reaching for the religious, sacred. When trying to defend the equality of every single person, we're hard-pressed and start reaching for the language of divine, the sacred. The trouble is, trying to showcase, let alone prove our equal worth, is a very difficult task. 
want you to imagine for a second, and let's have some fun. Plato, who we talked about last week, uh, he's been resurrected and he's come to join us this morning. And we have the opportunity to make the case to Plato that against his philosophy, his very clear philosophy that not, not all humans are made equal, we get to argue our case. Plato, you're wrong. All human beings are equal. Imagine Plato standing here. Nexus, you have a very interesting hypothesis. I'm intrigued. Can you show me this equality that you speak of? And we would say, Plato, come on, that's easy. It's self-evident. We're all humans. We're all the same species. It's clearly self-evident. And Plato might reply, hmm, interesting theory, though I'm not sure I agree, because you see both chihuahuas and German shepherds are of the same species, but it's not at all clear to me that these are equal beings. One reminds me more of a rat or a squirrel. <laughs> Furthermore, the German shepherd could easily destroy and kill the chihuahua. Actually, what I see nexus is difference, not similarity. You may go, okay, all right, all right, touche. You got us on that one. But think about it. Look at us, Plato. It's clear we're all equal. Plato, at this point, perhaps losing his patience, might say, listen, I know this equality thing seems very important to you. Let's try to empirically test it, shall we? For the sake of experimentation, let us pick two random people in this room, pick a random attribute in which we can compare the two, and let us see what conclusion we come to. Are they equal or not? So say, let us begin with beauty. Let us pick Mr. Brad and Mr. Glenn Pascoe. <laughs> Tell me, folks, who is the more beautiful of the species. Don't vote. <laughs> this is what I was scared of. <laughs> in which I would reply, Mr. Plato, beauty is in the eye beholder. That is very subjective. And quite frankly, Nexus is known for having poor taste. So, <laughs> try again. He might say, all right, let's have a contest of physicality, a wrestling match. Mr. Brad, versus Billy Joe. Billy Joe, could you stand? <laughs> um, if you had to put $10 on this <laughs> Is anyone going to vote for $10 on me? Shoot, now I'm down, too. What about intelligence? Let's pit Mr. Brad against Sarah Holmes in the School of Biology, and in particular, the study of snail gonads, which Sarah Holmes has some published research on. Can you imagine that? Snail gonads, how about that? Who is the more intelligent when it comes to the realm of biology? What, have you, what do you think? If we had a Jeopardy, me versus Sarah, who's going to put their money on me? God, I see. Okay. By the way, Kirsten, you didn't say my name. Uh -huh. <laughs> anyway, okay. Oh. <laughs> All right. What about building? You have to, you're going to do a home rental project. 
you're going to invest 50000 and you can either give Brian 50000 to do up your house or me. <laughs> Brian? You're going to have Jake and I sing Man in the Mirror. <laughs> who, who would you prefer? What Plato, I believe, would conclude is, all I see is difference. And you... Your faith in equality, Nexus, it fascinates me, but where is this magical realm of equality? Because to insist that two people are equal when every human trait betrays inequality can only have me concluding, I'm not convinced by your evidence. And further, it looks to me like you, Nexus, have decided to believe in something without reason or evidence. The interesting thing is that my good atheist friends say the exact same thing to me about God. Brad, I want to see what you see. I want to have this faith in God, but it seems to me you've put your faith in something with no reason or evidence. Yuval Noah Harare, you might recognize this name. He's, he's an author of two best-selling books. They're such fascinating books, Sapiens and Homo Deus. Harari is a historian who's also an atheist. And as a historian, particularly in his book, Sapiens, he goes to great lengths and great pains to showcase that we only understand our future by understanding our past and that our past has been uh, one of incredible struggle. But he has an interesting thesis. He says, how is it that Homo sapiens have come to dominate the planet? He says it makes no sense. We're not the strongest, the fastest, the stealthiest, or the toughest species on the planet. Not even close. So how have we come to dominate? His thesis is twofold. First, humans cooperate incredibly well. And the reason we cooperate very well is because we tell stories. A few seasons ago here at Nexus, we explored ourselves as the storytelling species. Our success and dominance on the planet has come from our ability to tell stories to one another. And the stories that we tell one another, they unite us, they divide us, they police us, they give us goals, they give us hope in times of suffering. And for century and millennia, the stories we told were of the gods. But more recently, Harari writes, there's been a new story we started telling. Uh, he says this, most legal systems in the world today are based on a belief in human rights, but what are human rights? Human rights, like God in heaven, are just a story that we've invented. They're not an objective reality. They're not a biological fact about homo sapiens. Take a human being, cut them open, look inside. You'll find the heart, kidneys, neurons, hormones, DNA, but you won't find any rights. The only place you find rights is in the stories that we have invented and spread over the last few centuries. They may be very positive stories, very good stories, but they're still just fictional stories that we've invented. This has huge implications, A, on the power of story. Sometimes it's easy to look at the stories we tell, ah, it's just a story. No, stories have power and meaning. But I also find it interesting, and I do not think it an accident at all, that Harari places human rights and the God story in the same category. God and human rights are inseparably linked. And human rights are not obvious or 
demonstrable scientifically. What is obvious through science and casual observation is difference. And I think most of us get this because when we walk into a room, we're, we're often scanning, oh, look, who's, who's got more power here? Or even with my friends, they have the differences. They got a nicer house. They got this. They got that. We tend to see the world through difference. Human rights are found in the stories that we tell ourselves. So the question is this, what kind of story do we need to establish human worth and equality? Because not all stories are of the same value. And the ancient stories of the gods certainly don't help. They considered us tools of the gods. We need a story strong enough to hold the idea that we're all made equal. I don't dream often. Well, I suppose I do, but I never remember them. A couple weeks ago, I had a very vivid dream, and it was of Taylor Swift. <laughs> this was not a young man's dream of Taylor Swift. This was a more middle-aged dream. It was very vivid and very real to me. And in the dream, we were chatting in this cozy little room. We're just chatting, and she made an appeal to me. She said, Brad, I want you to come on tour with me. <laughs> I said, in what capacity? She said, I want you to be my personal clergy chaplain. I said, I want you before every show to, to remind me how much the fans have paid to be here, to give me a pep talk. I said, huh, that's okay, I'm intrigued. She said, I'll pay you well. More intrigued. I said, but I'm going around the world. What, what do I do? What about my family and, and Nexus? She said, money's to have fly. If I can get back for the Super Bowl next week after a, okay, I can get you anywhere around the world. I said, okay, this is interesting, Taylor. Finally, I said one thing before uh, I agree, Taylor. Um, we're going to get to know each other pretty well, and I want to make sure that I am, uh, don't end up being the object of your next hit single, uh, the unrequited love between pop star and clergy here. Um, just, I'm a married man, I wanna make sure. Remember, it was vivid in the dream. She said, you don't need to worry about that. <laughs> she said, I date athletes and people who have more money than you could ever imagine. I said, okay, I just wanted to clear the air, Taylor. Just wanted to get that out there. And she said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to send you all the details in an email, and you let me know if you're in or not. And it was at that point that I woke up, and you know that place between dream and reality? I was so convinced that this had happened that my phone was next to my bed, and I grabbed it, and I opened my email, and I'm like, oh, no email from Taylor Swift. <laughs> I guess I'm not going on tour with her. I don't know why, I'm not even a big fan of Taylor Swift, but uh, anyway, that was my dream. But I bring that up because Sam Harris has an analogy that he uses, and as an atheist, it's actually, actually an analogy he uses as a case against God, but I find this very interesting. Imagine I told you that one of these glasses of water belonged to Taylor Swift, and that she was in this room last night. She was in this room last night, rehearsing, whatever. She took one of these glasses of water, 
took a sip. She put it down. Now, how much are you willing to pay for that glass of water? Now, a glass of water may be worth a dollar. Maybe you're dying of thirst. Okay, I'll pay you 10, max $10. But if we are told the glass of water had a connection with pop sensation and cultural icon Taylor Swift, how much would you be willing to pay? Now, if you're not a fan of her, you're like, nothing. But it, in connection with Taylor Swift, all of a sudden that glass of water could be worth thousands. Because if the buyer values Taylor Swift, then the buyer will value the glass. I posed this question to Zoe this week. Hey, imagine, I got a glass of water. Taylor Swift has taken a sip of it. How much would you pay me for it? She said, a million dollars. Her cousin was next to her and said, can we first buy tickets to see her and then maybe think about the glass of water? But it's an interesting thing, though, because what exactly is the buyer valuing? The material content of the glasses of water is essentially the same and essentially worthless. The water alone is kind of meaningless. But it becomes meaningful in connection with a story. A story. And in connection with the story, the glass has meaning far, far beyond what the material content is. We've seen this, remember the Seinfeld episode where George buys John Voight's car, turns out not to be John Voight's car, but he's very excited because he thinks his car's valuable. Or just lately, I don't know why I'm getting these, I keep getting advertisements for these hexaclad pots and pans that Gordon Ramsay endorses. And I like Gordon Ramsay, so I clicked on the link to see how much one was. $250 for a hexaclad pan. Nonstick, but still a pan. I didn't buy it, but I was like, huh, why do celebrities endorse things? Because a story that connects an icon to something relatively worthless elevates its value. And the interesting thing is Harris gives this analogy, and he wants to make a point about his atheism. So in this analogy, Harris takes the glass illustration. He takes it in a very interesting direction. He goes on to say that the glass is like a piece of land. And in particular, he likens the, the glasses piece of land to the Middle East. And he goes on to say that one group calls it Israel, another calls it Palestine, but the conflict is motivated by stories that God has touched this land and given it to them specifically. And this causes Sam Harris to despair because he thinks God's stories are dangerous and false. And he concludes the analogy this way. The reason why the parties involved in the Arab-Israeli conflict can't resolve their problems as though it were a real estate transaction is because they're making irrational and irreconcilable claims about the land. But while we're arguing over the value of the glass, Taylor Swift was never here. She never touched the glass. She never touched the land. And you got to hand it to Harris. This is a pretty good point. And without doubt. Now, through the past 5,000 years, God's stories and what they mean have caused untold suffering and violence. If something is touched by God, it is worth, is going to go up dramatically, and when that happens, problems arise because people might be willing to kill for it. In the history of Christianity, Judaism, Islam, it plays this out. Harris has a serious point here, but I want to take the analogy further. What if the glass of water we're talking about isn't a piece of land, but a human being? 
What is the value of a human being? I'm told, I have no idea if this is true, if you boil a human down to their chemical makeup, it's worth about $30. If you take that same human and put them to work and tell them to make money for you, they might make you a whole lot more money. But none of us want to value a human on how much they can earn or make or how much the chemicals in our bodies are worth. So how do you put a value on a human being? What are they worth? Consider these glasses of water. I labeled these because there's two I can't mix up. This is tap water. How much would you pay? We expect tap water to be free. Probably not much. Now this is vapor distilled water. You might be willing to pay me more for this water. Although some of you might be like, I hate plastic bottles. I would refuse to do that. I won't buy that. Now, this one's bubbly. How much might you be willing to pay me for this one? This one is toilet water. <laughs> I took the cup to the toilet, dipped it in the bowl, and brought it here. How much would you be willing to pay me for this one right here? My guess is you're going, that's disgusting. None. But here's the interesting thing. All water in here is the same material content. You might give me more for the bubbly. You probably expect this for free. This is disgusting. Maybe you pay me a bit for that. But the content is exactly the same. Question is, how do I make one of those glasses worth everything? Well, do you have We need a cosmic Taylor Swift. We need cosmic Taylor Swift God to come, take this water, give it a kiss, take a swig, and then everyone who values and loves Taylor Swift will say, that's beautiful. That's priceless. This is amazing. Don't hurt or harm or do anything to this water. Otherwise, we're like, this one you can throw out. It's worthless. This one I kind of like. Eh, that's cheap labor there. But if God kisses us and puts his image in us, then every human is equal and has a worth that is measureless. And there's only one story that does that. Then God said, let's make humankind in our image. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. One story. And then Paul comes along later and says, let's take this even further. In Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. Yes, I see difference. I know there's difference. Plato, I agree with you. There's difference. But now, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Last week, I surprised people by how defensive I sounded. I had someone ask me, are you 
Brad trying to prove to us that Christianity is true. And someone, they reflected on me, for them growing up, you know, they had been taught there's one way and only one, one way. It's Christianity, everything else is a lie and deception. It's just like, oh, that gives us, ooh, makes me cringe a bit. And my teaching reminded them of that tone. Yikes, I don't ever want to be accused of that. But this, to me, isn't about shoving Christianity down anyone's throat. It's about helping us wrestle and reckon with our history and the legacy that despite the church has hurt so many people for the past 2,000 years, there's been one story that says we're all equal. And I'm not interested in proving Christianity to anyone. I don't think that can be done. I tend to stand with Harari on this one. Christian faith in the Jesus path is a story. Is it true? Said it before or said it again? I don't know. I honestly don't. I don't know. And I'm okay to live in that tension. I don't know, but I hope it's true. I want it to be true. But none of that makes it true. It's a matter of faith. But this is what I really worry about that we will get to the point that we conclude this story is not true. That we would leave the realm of faith and decide, you know what, I'm done with faith, I want certainty, and in certainty we conclude this story is not true, because if it isn't true, what we get religiously is this. The church is guilty of this when it comes to forgetting the truth of this story. And in Tom Holland's, it's just an absolutely magisterial work, his book, Dominion. All throughout the story, I was so fascinated by this. He said, time and time again, when the church veers off path and commits crimes against humanity, does the worst of itself throughout history, they appeal not to their own stories, but to Aristotle the philosopher. Anytime we set out on a crusade, anytime the Inquisition got going in various forms, anytime Protestant and Catholics decided we're going to go kill the other side, the driving philosophy was this, for that some should rule and other be ruled is a thing not only necessary but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. Christianity becomes a monster when it loses its own story. And that's just the religious end. Outside of that, there are those who have never pretended to believe the story. And look what it has brought. Theodore Bale writes, this is a little... It's not good to compare numbers, but it's interesting. He says this, apparently it's just an amazing coincidence that every communist of historical note publicly declared his atheism. There have been 28 countries in world history that can be confirmed to have been ruled by regimes with avowed atheists. And at the helm, these 28 historical regimes have been ruled by 89 atheists, of whom more than half have engaged in democidal acts of the sort committed by Stalin and Mao. The total body count for the 90 years between 1917 and 2007 is approximately 148 million dead at the hands of 52 atheists. Three times more than all human beings killed by war, civil war, individual crime in the entire 20th century. The historical record of collective atheism is thus 182,000 times worse on annual basis than Christianity's worst and most famous misdeeds. Now, 
when you're talking thousands and millions, like, it seems like an exercise in picking the best of a worst lot. And it isn't to me about atheism or theism. The real issue is what happens when we lose the story that tells us we're all equal. What happens? There are consequences to the stories we believe, whether they are true or not. And you could say, Brad, you're being a little bit dramatic here. Maybe, but what's at stake? Because we can tout all we want. You know what? It doesn't matter, Brad, because the United Nations has a declaration that all humans are made equal. We've got it enshrined in the United Nations, but which countries believe it? Does Russia believe that? China? Does Hamas? Does Israel? Does Iran? Does Canada? Really? Does the United States? Really? And it's interesting, Tom Holland also had an interesting section in his book where he talked about when did, when did Americans on whole, the world on whole, stop becoming scared about threats by hell? Because Christianity for centuries said, well, you better become a Christian because you might go to hell. But on mass, he said, it stopped being a collective scare tactic after one historical incident, the Holocaust. Because people said to themselves, what's there to be scared of if we as humans can create this hell right here? Post-World War II, when we realized what we're capable of, when we lose sight of the story that all humans are created equal, we're capable of putting people on trains, cattling them to concentration camps, and burning them. That's what we're capable of. You know, and I cannot and will not ever try to prove to you that the Jesus story is true. And I understand, if you don't agree with me, that without these stories, human rights as we know them would never have emerged in the first place. I think history tells the tale, but I understand very well the impulse to not want to afford church or Christianity any ground because it's hurt some of us so much. Even still... It's a story that is entrusted to each and every generation of people who follow the Jesus path. It's ours to hold on to. And Tom Holland traces through the centuries, how did these Christian stories make their way into the fabric of our consciousness, our imagination? It says, preaching and persuasion and politics. Telling these stories, trying to get them enshrined into law, preaching to people that we're all equal. Let's say this, in the end, I don't know if this story is true or entirely a fiction. I don't know. But I do know what happens when we stop believing it. And last week I mentioned that creeds can be taken two ways. You see a creed as something you mentally assent to with a high degree of certainty, or Creed can be seen as a statement of devotion. I'm not sure how certain I am of the story's empirical truth, but I'm sure as hell devoted to it. Because without it, we lose the vision that every single one of us is created equal and that our worth is beyond measure. May we, in our struggle with faith, in church, in our history, hold on to that.